Well, indeed, indeed, indeed. Good morning. And uh, thank you for the friendly engagement. I want to take just a, a few moments here before we jump into God's uh, exhortation for us today. And I do believe it's an exhortation for all of us today. Um, just to see what God's been doing out on the street this week. And I take this opportunity every now and then, but uh, is there maybe one, two people say, this is what God, I saw God sighting this week. He worked in my life, through my life this way. Or maybe as we've been challenging each other to step across the line to be able to reduce the lostness, uh, push back the darkness kind of deal. Uh, he said, you know, this is an opportunity I had this week. So ABCs of sharing together, remember? A stands for audible, stand up, share your name, be clear. B stands for brief. That's always really important. And C is Christ-centered, right? So ABCs. And uh, anybody? Uh, if not, that's fine. We can move on. Is God doing something in your life this week? And you just bring a word of testimony in today. Mike Bartell, come up here. I asked Mike if he, uh, if I could lean into a story he told me this week. Uh, Mike and I had lunch together, and we were talking a little bit about last week's message and. Uh, the whole thing of us needing to cross the line. And I think it was a week ago, Saturday, that you had uh, been out golfing with your brother-in-law yeah. and uh, you got in your truck afterwards or whatever and take the story from there and share what God's sighting was. Dead battery. <laughs> that doesn't happen at Toyotas very often. <laughs> By the way, Andrew, God is in the healing business. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I was talking with Terry at lunch this last week, and I had to—I I really wanted to talk to him because of something he said in church the week before, one last Sunday, and it really rang home to me. He was talking about his time in the in the fast food joint, which we know we don't all go there, but <laughs> but just you look around at the people, and you say, well, well, "Who are you going to lead me to, Lord? They all need you," you know. And I and I thought about that because. I'm in this business, too, of looking at people and trying to find out what they need. And I had a story that I wanted to tell him that rang true to what he was trying to get across to you, kind of put legs on the message. When I found that my battery was dead and I was the last one in the parking lot and it was dark, I said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? Immediately, I went there he's always got something to teach me and sometimes he has to slow me down so I called the, the automobile club and out comes this guy he gets there in about 5-10 minutes he checks my battery it says it's just gone <laughs> he could jump it if I would follow him back to his shop to the automobile club shop they would put a new battery in for me and I said I would hold on my phone just started to vibrate <laughs> He said I would, and I went back there. Uh, before we went, though, I, I looked at him as he was closing the hood to my truck, and I said, I, I detect an accent in your voice. I said, where are you from? And he said, Iraq. I said, Iraq, you're an Iraqi. He said, no, I'm not. With pride, no, I'm not. He said, I'm a Chaldean. I'm going. How do people in the 21st century even know what Chaldeans are unless they read the Bible? So I said, do you know what a Chaldean is? Did your parents, are they Chaldeans? He says, yes. And we, they came over here and brought me when I was a baby and all that. And I'm a Chaldean. I 
Don't want to be known as an Iraqi. So I said, fine, I'll follow you back to your shop. I get in my truck and I follow him back. And on the way there, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you when people ask. So I said, okay, Lord, what are we going to do now? <laughs> and we get there, and I proceeded to talk to him while he was doing the work, just conversationally talking to him about the Chaldean people and whether or not he knew their history. And I told him about Babylon and those of you that have been reading your Bibles for some time understand the prophet Daniel spent some time there with the, with the Israelis after during the Babylonian captivity and taught the Chaldeans all about the word of God. And they understood. And, and sometime I'll tell you why I know they understood. <laughs> but that's not the story. The story is this. Sometimes we forget who we are. I wear a uniform a lot, of, a lot of days during the week with the sheriff's department, and I wore a uniform when I was in the military. And, and as I said to the service before, the uniform is our outward appearance to the world. And that's what they look at, and they expect you to behave a certain way then. We put on Christ. We should behave that way. We should be expected to, and we should not even think twice about it. That's what my exhortation is to you this morning. And I think this morning, as you listen to Pastor Kerry, you'll hear more of the same. God bless you. And this man's name is? Oh, the man's name is Ibrahim. And he was receptive to you. Very receptive. In fact, he called me this week, and I talked to him on the phone. I gave him my card, and he called me. By the way, Ibrahim, with that, that, that structure of that name, means of the sons of Abraham. Okay? So. And one of the reasons I found it interesting as we were sharing, if you remember last week, we dived a little bit deeper into this whole idea of a man of peace. When Jesus sent people out, he said, find a man of peace in the village. And peace, man of peace, a people of peace, a woman of peace, whatever, is someone who has some maybe liking towards you. And a lot of times for us as we're on mission together, it's a matter of just being sensitive to maybe who might have that some affinity. And I think maybe you identifying with that Chaldean, how many people would know something like that, right? And that, It's like, oh, wow, and then be able to speak into his life? How cool is that? Wouldn't it be neat someday if there was a whole Chaldean village of people who came to know Jesus because of just some open door that uh, Mike was able to step through this week? Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. No problem. All right, here we go. I'm going to try to be a little bit shorter today than I was in the first service. But the reason is because I'm stepping across a line this morning. It's a line I've been challenged with in the last few months as leader, as new leader of this church. And I thought maybe I didn't need to have us cross this line as a church until the fall. But God's saying that he wants us to cross the line now amidst everything else that's going on. And so I'm unloading my burden today. And, um, and I say that with a smile on my face because as some of you know who Charles Stanley is. And he's a great preacher. He's on radio and TV a lot kind of thing. 
And uh, he has a son named Andy Stanley, and he grew up, and Andy Stanley now leads a large church in the Atlanta area. And when he asked his dad, who's this great pastor, for advice about preaching, he just simply told his son, he says, you just make sure you have a burden to unload and unload it. And uh, so I'm going to unload a burden on you this morning. This is something that's been building not just in the last few months, but even as I study in this week, this thing's going back now years for me. And, um, and I was hesitant to cross the line until I had a three-hour meeting with Dan Allen this week, and he said it's okay to cross it. So as, as vice chair of the elders, I'm crossing it. Um, but I want to call us out, and I want to challenge us specifically. Now, this week was uh, the start of the Olympics. Any of you watched the uh, opening ceremony? Watched the opening ceremony uh, the other day with uh, my two kids, and it's all interesting. I want you to identify this picture, though, as it relates to the Olympics. Do you want that picture's of? Oh, yeah. When is that? 1980. Very good. That's a picture of the U.S. hockey team playing who? Russia. Russia. And what happened? We won! We won! And it's called the Miracle on Ice. There's a movie and everything about it. 1980, 34 years ago, the Russians dominated hockey. In part because we did not send professional hockey players to the Olympics. Professionals didn't go to the Olympics back in those days, right? So it was amateurs, amateurs and college kids. We put together a team, and we played the Russians, and the Russians have basically won every world championship and Olympics since 1954. And that particular semifinal game, I believe, we beat the Russians, and then we went on to win the gold by beating Finland. And those of us that Eric could say, yeah, I can identify with that, man. And do you know that that was voted the number one sporting victory of the century? was the miracle on ice. And so I was thinking as the Olympics were starting this week, you know, it is so cool to get a big, huge team win. And wouldn't have been neat to be a part of that team. And do you think every time the Winter Olympics come around, the guys that were on that team sit back and go, wow, that was a ride. That was a great game. They probably call each other up. Maybe they have reunions. I don't know. But they have that experience where they were on a team and they had not only a victory, but they had a shared experience that built memories and bonds for a lifetime. The miracle on ice. This week... We didn't have a very good Super Bowl as far as the game goes. Now, the Seahawks won, which many of you are excited about, right? I was still a Peyton Manning fan from the Colts days. But what do you think the Seattle fans are still doing? They're still cheering, right? Because it was a great team win, right? You're going to carry that through, you know, the Seattle finally gets a win, that kind of thing for a championship of that era. And they'll carry that with them forever. In fact, I, I, I saw Josh and Tiff. You guys got a new dog. God bless you for that. And you named the dog Wilson after the quarterback. Is that true? Uh, how incredible is that? that? Those are diehard kind of fans right there. All right? Now, listen, I want to just tap into that concept of team and being on a victorious team. And not just being on a victorious team, but being on a team that builds an experience and a bond that lasts a lifetime. And I want to challenge you to sign up for a team today. To sign up for a team. A team I believe that you will be able to look back over your years and go, what a ride that was to be on that team. What an incredible opportunity just to participate and and be a part of what God was doing on that team. Now when they have the gold medals this week, 
you'll have your individual goals, whether it's in, you know, something like snowboarding, skiing, or ice skating, whatever it may be. But there will be something different, I think, about an individual who stands and get the gold and, and uh, silver or the bronze and, and representing the country and all the, the pride that comes to them as an individual for their hard work. But, you know, when you celebrate, you ever celebrated something alone versus celebrating something together? I think there'll be a difference with people that are on teams that win gold. Because when you get off that platform, you're going in back and you're, you're still giving the high fives, giving the hugs and the embraces because you did it together. You are part of a team. And somewhere in American Christianity, maybe it's that rugged individualism we came up with, it's become an individual sport. Christianity is not an individual sport. This is a team effort that we're called to. And I want to take us back on a journey of uh, a little bit of what we talked about last week, hook it into this week, and we'll go from there. Last week we looked at Romans 10, verses 13 through 16. Will you read this together with me? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him unless they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the Scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. And so we talked about being messengers of the good news last week. But you notice something in that statement from the Apostle Paul? It doesn't say how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. It's plural. The feet of those are the feet of the messengers. So it's not like you're sending one individual courier out to go deliver a message. You're sending a whole team, an entourage, to be able to deliver the good news. The good news, maybe that's something that's happened here. It's like, wow, people show, whoa, what great news. I remember when you guys welcomed Melissa and I a few months ago, and there was a whole team of people that showed up to greet us. How cool was that? Or have you ever gone uh, caroling sometimes and, and, you, and you just sort of stay, you can't wait because you open the door and then you just all rock into some Christmas songs. It's like, wow, this is more than a little Christmas greeting. There's a lot of Christmas greeting here. There's something about numbers and the excitement and the intensity that I think a numbers bring. And we are called to be messengers, plural, together as a team of people of the good news of Jesus Christ. But usually when it comes to evangelism and sharing the faith and being a person of good news, we think of the individual aspect. Like it was a great testimony from Mike this morning about him being able to meet that person who identified him as a Chaldean and being able to step into that. But, you know, those are great testimonies, but think about being able to do that together in a multiplicity. And we're going to talk about how that can be expanded to be able to be true of our individual lives um, where they weren't just by ourselves. Now, with this, I want us to go to Acts 1. Acts 1.8, these are the words of Jesus. Here's Jesus starting the movement of Christianity. He died, he rose from the grave, he spent a period of a few weeks with his followers, and now he's getting ready to descend to the heavens. And so Acts, which stands for the Acts of the Apostles, following Jesus, you know, being here on earth, describes what happened in those moments. And Acts 1.8, you may be familiar with it as a follower of Christ this morning if you've been journeying with him. Jesus said these words, 
to his disciples, his core that's there. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, shortly after this, then, what? Jesus ascended before their very presence. And the angel said, hey, why are you guys all spooked? This same Jesus who ascended into the heavens will come back in the same manner. And so we anticipate that Jesus is coming back. But here's Jesus giving, like, last-minute instructions to his team. And he's saying, this is what you need to do. You need to sort of wait and tarry here. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, which is what? The very presence of Jesus invading back in in a spiritual sense into their very being. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses. And he's, he's just giving these coaching instructions. That's Jesus' game plan when he leaves. Bye. Oh. Uh... Can you imagine those first few moments after the ascension? I, I just, there's so many, like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall kind of pictures in, in the scriptures. Uh, wow, ooh, that's pretty. Man, you talk about some special effects. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that's us. And what they do? They went and prayed. They bonded together as a team because they knew they were being sent on a mission. They were being sent on a mission to disperse and my goodness, it had been one thing for Jesus to say just Jerusalem or maybe just Judea, which is sort of a little proper area there. Samaria is more of a cross-ethnic kind of... But then he tags on the ends of the earth. I'm like, really, Jesus? And you just left? I can't comprehend what was going on in all their spirit as they were trying to comprehend what to do. There's a book I've come across by the name uh, that's written by Michael Green. And Michael Green's written this book called 30 Years. 30 Years That Changed the World. And it talks about what happened in the 30 years after Jesus ascended. And I just want to read this section to you. Because what was Jesus thinking when he left that little small team? The approach of the first Christians was strikingly different than our modern way of evangelizing. It was a totally opposite strategy than how we do outreach. They learned it from Jesus. He had sent, spent much time, quality time with three men, Peter, James, and John. Beyond that had been the circle of the 12, then of the 70. And we talked about the 70 being sent out last week, right? That's where the man of peace comes from. Then of the crowds. Jesus had concentrated on getting the center of his little band hot and well-informed, and he moved out from there. And that is what the disciples did. They gave attention to their own unity and prayerfulness obedience and expectancy. And they were able to move out from that hot center onto the streets with enormous effect on the day of Pentecost and in the months and the years that followed. In obedience to Jesus, they began to be his witness in Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. It was an effective strategy. Then I highlighted this. Their fellowship was so vibrant their lifestyle so attractive, their warmth so great that it was infectious. People were drawn in as to a vortex, and God added to the church those who were being saved. We move from Acts 1, and we see this exact thing is what they moved into. A red-hot center, a team that was functioning in prayerfulness and obedience 
and contemplating what God was calling them to do. Can you see that migration of, of these individuals from these just observers or these followers into these initiators and these people of impact? Acts 2, a familiar passage, says this, the next chapter after the ascension. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayer. This was after the Holy Spirit had, had come upon them. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now let's look at the first part of that passage I just read. Because in this part, we usually have pulled out that this is the heart of the passage. Well, what did they do? They came together and this is what they did. They, they listened to the apostles' teachings, the scripture, and to the words spoken by the leadership and to the fellowship. They, you know, they, they, they hung out together. They did things together and they'd been eating together, right? And then the breaking of the bread, the sacrament of, of remembering what the Lord's work was, and to prayer. We usually highlight those kinds of things, but I want to highlight two other things that maybe you've seen, maybe you've overlooked in the, in the passage. Temple and home. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. There were two kinds of environments that this um, movement began with. There was the public gathering where they would meet in the temple courts, and then there was the home gathering where they would meet in the, in the households of people, more of a social space. So there's the public space and there's the social space. This is a public space. If we put first service together with this service, it would really be a, a big public space kind of environment. But that's different than if we went into the home of a person. And so they had this red-hot center that was developing in their lives, not just in the public declaration, the Holy Spirit came in a public environment. People began to speak in other languages to be able to communicate the faith, and people were like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? And it says 3,000 know, were added to their number that day. It's like, oh my goodness, can you imagine? That's a mass of people and a movement that started. And that's usually what we give attention to. But then in Acts 2, it's behind the scenes, sort of. They're meeting in the homes, and they're coming together in these hot vibrant kind of communities. These oikoses are developing. Now, just as last week we talked about the man of peace, and I want you to sort of learn that terminology, and we had that example of, of Mike today and being able to find, you know, here's maybe a man of peace with a person from, identifies himself with the Chaldeans, and, and it just would be so cool that that particular individual became a Christ follower, and then we had a whole sector of people here someday that were Chaldeans and became Christ followers, right? How cool would that be? So that's the concept of us needing to find the people of peace in our life to be able to press in and move down those type of dimensions, whether socioeconomic, uh, uh, racials, uh, you know, maybe it's lifestyle, different kinds of things. There's all kinds of cracks and crevices that we can move into. But not to just be messengers of good news as solo operators, but to do it together as teams. And so you had this public environment, but then you had this oikos that was developing. Now the oikos word, it's a, it's, it's a Greek word that gives reverence to a home, a household. And we usually think household as it relates to nuclear families. 
Um, so you have mom, dad, the kids, and we live in this house by ourselves. And, you, and, and then like four feet away is another house around Temecula. I'm, you can tell I'm on a house search right now. I'm like, where's, where's the sense of space out here, you know? And so, you know, and that's our concept. We think of household in that regards. But that's not the concept back then. Back then, it was extended family. Your oikos included not just, you know, your nuclear family, but your extended family. So it might be brothers and sisters and, and kids. And, you know, I, you know and, and I know with, uh, you know, some um, uh, different kinds of dimensions of, of, of family and, uh, and uh, with, uh, you know, in-laws could be there or stepkids, whatever maybe. You've got this concept of a much broader identity. Well, oikos is another word I want you to get a hold of if you've never heard of it. And oikos means household. But household doesn't mean nuclear family. It means extended family. And so I, I found this picture from a few years ago of the Bowman oikos. This was taken at a wedding of one of the 18 cousins. I have five siblings. Mom and dad's there in the center. Five si uh, there's five of the siblings. There's 18 grandkids. And uh, since this picture was taken, definitely uh, my kids have gotten taller. My father has passed away. We've added two more spouses to this picture. And this next month, we're going to add the first great-grandchild for my mom. Uh, not us or anything, but... Uh, <laughs> see, I'm already identifying that we're an oikos. We're a household. So our household, that we have ownership of the next generation that's coming along. Actually, the couple that's married here is having the first, uh, their first child. And so... You look at this and you go, oh, that's sort of a cool family, that kind of deal. Well, I tell you what, this oikos that I grew up with and that Melissa has stepped in to be a part of, just as surely as I've stepped in to be a part of the oikos from her side of the family, um, we have some great team wins. We have some great memories. And we talk about it when we get together and we are there for one another or something was to come up. In fact, I, I found out a little entourage is coming in a few weeks because I now live in Southern California, so why wouldn't we want to leave this Midwest weather and go see Carrie in Southern California? And so, um, you know, I am just so grateful to God for the oikos that I've had. And because uh, uh, there's farmers represented there, when you work together on a grain farm, you get to know each other even more and lean into one another. So when you hear the word oikos, I want you to think in terms of family extended family, not nuclear family, and not just the idea of a bloodline. I have this diagram, and it reflects a little bit from last week's diagram. An oikos can represent people that are friends, people that are neighbors, people that were work associates, people you know from school connections, maybe the relatives, all right? Other people, maybe from, uh, you know, your recreation worlds that you're a part of, okay? Who is in your oikos? Do you have an oikos? If I had you flip on the back of your note sheet and write down the names of the people that are in your oikos of operations on a weekly basis, would you have some? I believe you would. And some of you are saying, it's a little wobbly right now. And others of you are like, well, I'm sort of new in the area. And I'm like, I don't really have connections, right? Well, I want you to know my desire is for us to build teams that are extended families that are oikos, and that we do this work that Jesus called us to do together as teams. 
And I believe your oikos is not something that can be forced together. It's sort of something that comes naturally. Sometimes it's initiatives taken. But to identify who's in your oikos and how you can bring other people into your oikos. Let me show you one of my non-blood oikoses in earlier years. This is a group of us guys. I think we were in college. A lot of us had been together in youth ministry. The guy in the middle with the big old mobile phone there, doesn't that date the picture? There's um, our youth pastor. His name was Dwight. And uh, I can go right around the circle there. I have Dan, I have George, I have Mick, I have Chris, I have Mark, I have Sherwin, I have Eric, and there's me in the upper left corner, and then there's Andrew, Andy. And we did a lot of life together. We had fun together. We met together in groups. We did mission trips together. Uh, we served together on campuses some. Each of us have gone some different kinds of ways today. But we still have some connectedness and some bonds. And I could go around that group and I could point to you what each of them are doing, whether one's a medical doctor and serves God faithfully week in and week out, being able to minister to people God's grace through a physical touch as well as an emotional word of encouragement and a spiritual exhortation, he's on it. An engineer that's able to share his faith vibrantly in a, in a large corporation. Another individual that is a philanthropist, a, an entrepreneurial person, and God's blessed him financially. He's opened up orphanages in Ethiopia and built other kinds of things. And given, he, he sits on several boards of ministry organizations. Another one who was a missionary went to a country that had no access to the gospel, and he was like one first ones in, you know, first responders kind of deal. It was even a place you weren't supposed to share the name of Jesus, and he established the the church there for his denomination. He's since become pastor of a large church in Michigan. I have another individual who's a missionary, and he travels and speaks, and another individual, you know, that um, uh, is involved in, in, in everyday, what you perceive as everyday, ordinary kinds of things, but he's living vibrantly in that faith. And then my youth pastor friend, he oversees a parachurch ministry out of Denver these days called Kingdom Building Ministries that still does the same things, mobilizing young adults, empowering them, equipping them, sending them on adventures together to do the Word of God. I love those guys. And yes, not that you don't have ups and downs in your oikos, in your comings and your goings. But we had some team wins. And every now and then you get a chance. In fact, this last summer we had a chance for most of us to get together in a reunion and what do we sit around and talk about? God's work. What's God doing in your life? And at that particular time in my life this last summer, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and they were there for me, and they prayed for me. What's your oikos? Do you have an oikos, or are you a lone ranger? See, our world sort of teaches us to be more lone rangers. Don't open up. Don't be too vulnerable. You're imperfect, but you know what? Everyone's imperfect. This oikos concept is what I really want to present and step across the line to you today. I've mentioned it before, but I want to call the oikoses that God's leading us to develop here through this church, missional communities. I want us to start to get together in teams. These teams can't be forced. There has to be some organic nature to this. But these teams may include friend connections, work connections, neighbor connections, school connections, relative connections, I don't know. But you come together and you begin to do not just life together, but you begin to do mission together. Mission. And there's three dynamics that are going to be operating in these missional communities 
that I believe God's asking us. And this may be new to you. Maybe it's like, hey, we've done that before. I've been a part of something like this. But I just want to bring clarity to it. Because God's not just calling us to grow and have, I think, catalytic, dynamic, public gatherings where we worship and we're heading back to worship here this morning, some worship some more, but, and hear God's word. And, and I, you know, I've been there. I've been the pastor of large churches. I've had large campuses and big buildings and all that. And you know what? It's good and well, and that's part of it, okay? But I don't want to just be a part of that anymore. I want to be a part of an organic movement. And to do that, we have to decentralize. And when we decentralize into missional communities, there's three things that need to be happening that create this red-hot core. If we put the Holy Spirit out there, I have this diagram. Put the Holy Spirit out there. There's three things that are starting to spin, almost like and they get some traction. It becomes like a flywheel, and it starts to spin and have, have uh, you know, sort of energy of its own that's stored up, and it moves it through. And there may be bursts of times in these missional communities where things are red hot, and there's more energy that's given to them, some exciting God things happening, and then there may be some other struggling times. But if we have these three dynamics spinning, and it's like a flywheel, there's going to be this continuity. And someone like Mike down here would know these kinds of things, right, with engines and stuff, is that there's going to be a, a, a continuity that, that carries through week to week, month to month, year to year, where these engines of God's grace are ignited and carry the day for us as a church. Rather than us trying to ramp it up every week, oh, let's do it again, bigger, better this Sunday. No, no, where are you now? We'll gather and we'll share stories, and we'll worship, and we'll look at God's Word, and we'll give instruction and teaching. But the real work of the kingdom of God needs to be in these missional communities. Jesus sent them out. He spent His time with a group of 12, an oikos that He was developing. And you and I can be a part of an oikos and develop that oikos and let these three things spin around and start working. The first is passionate spirituality, a hunger to know God, to know Jesus in an intimate way. I'm always amazed by... The Apostle John never mentions his name in his own gospel that he writes. He refers to himself not as John, but the the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. His identity to Jesus was, I'm someone loved by Jesus. And so our oikosis should be pointing us how to have passionate spirituality. It's just not head Bible knowledge. That's part of it. Scriptures come alive for us. God speaks to us through Scriptures. But a passionate spirituality develops. And you see that hunger in our world today. Spiritualness is always talked about. But where spirituality is is in the one who created it, the one who gave us his spirit. And passionate spirituality needs to be at the core of making a red-hot community, radical community than a radicalness to be able to give to one another as they had needs. You know, there's this whole thing of just jumping in and bonding and being there for one another. They had this, and that's what the Acts 2 passage is about a lot of times. You go, wow, well, that's a pretty cool community they had. I don't know about selling everything and give. Oh, well, there's just this concept that what I have is yours, and, and I have, I refer to it sometimes as open refrigerator rights. When somebody can walk into your house and just go to your refrigerator, yeah. you've crossed a line. You are now a part of the Oikos. Right? But they had radical community. And then they had this missional zeal. Now, sometimes we have small groups and other things that are really good at getting to know Jesus, and we're bonding and loving and caring for one another and praying for one another, but we, we just sit there on our couches, and we don't do anything. 
Well, Jesus mobilized these people to do something. And so there was this missional zeal. You know, I was driving in the car this week, and somehow, I, I, I don't know, I was speaking while I was talking on or something, and Grace overheard me, and I used the word missional. And I want to, you know, do missional communities or whatever. She goes, are you going to India again, Dad? She heard the word missional, and she associated it with what? Missionary, which is right. But then she made a misconnection. Missionary doesn't mean dad's going to India again. Missionary may mean that you speak up and talk to that man who identified himself as a Chaldean. Talk to that individual that you had a chance to at your workplace that came out of a Mormon background. You take the initiative to be the missionary in the moment. Not just as individuals, but together as teams. So those three things spinning around this red-hot fire of the Holy Spirit I believe will be the contagious, um, I don't say it's just the engine, the contagious vehicle that begins to move us into impact in this valley. But if we do not build and focus on dynamic missional communities that are oikos as houses of faith that also have a missionary edge to them, then we will not see what I believe God intended things to be. Now, I want to take this a step further, this whole idea of a, a red-hot center of community of people, and look at some concentric circles. In the center of this concentric circle is a flame, and it talks about an infectious nature of 15 to 30 people, high participation, people are involved at that numeric level. And some of this is like a sociological, uh, sociology lesson here. But as you get more and more people together, what happens? They aren't as part of the inner core of interactions just because it takes the time to have those relationships and communicate and do things together. And so they have slight participation. So first concentric circle, 15 to 30 people. Next one is 30 to 70 people. And they're around the fire, but it's sort of warm and they're interesting, sort of slight participation. But then you have the last concentric circle, which is 72-plus people in this particular diagram that I came across. And it's talking about these are the observers only. And they're more tepid. They're apathetic. But the increased access to the red-hot center requires that we break down the growing numbers of public people concerning a church movement to make sure that they are part of more social space um, uh, dynamics. Um, you know, some of you have fire pits in your backyard. It does get chilly here in the evenings. I'm learning that. You just don't tell people that back in the Midwest. They don't like to hear that. And so you're like, okay, it gets chilly out here. But, but you know, back in the Midwest, you would have a fire, and uh, you get around, and, and, you know, you sort of cook your hot dog and those kinds of deals. You do your s'mores. And, and, and then some more people would come. And, oh, this will make some more room for people around the fire, right? But after a while, you can only have so many people close to the fire. Because before you know it, you're way back here, and you're going, oh, it's cold. I need to get close to the fire. I need a longer stick for my hot dog, right? You can only get so many people around a particular kind of close fire pit. And then you have people standing around, and then there's some people that sort of come in. Lana's like, hey, what's going on here? That's, that was a good church service. I enjoyed that. I'm not even, I don't even know if I'm a participant in the church. I'm just sort of a spectator here. I think I'll just leave now. Service is over. And so we think we can build the American church oh, just building bigger and bigger churches. Well, I don't mind having larger and larger public kind of gatherings and accommodating that, but we are foolish to think that a church can genuinely grow in the faith and we can mobilize people on mission if we do not break it down and let other people get closer to the fire. 
And so this idea of calling you to sign up for a team, I'm calling you to sign up for a team that's called a missional community, and the missional community is going to be probably somewhere between 20 to 50 people, and you're going to be spinning around a Holy Spirit fire, hopefully, of, of, of a passionate spirituality, of getting to know Jesus in an intimate way. There's going to be radical community where you're learning how to love and be loved, all right, to celebrate and be celebrated, right? And, and then you're going to have this missionary zeal where you take initiative. And I'm not just talking, hey, some missional project. It may be you just start praying for the person that so-and-so mentioned over here that they would be able to work their way through some of the challenges of life and maybe come to faith in Jesus. And maybe you have a party that has some food and some s'mores going, and you invite them. And so you start inviting more and more people into the Oikos. But guess what happens? After a while, it's more than just a little oikos, we could, and you're going to have to do something. And it's not push people away, because we've historically done well with that. Oh, we got our only holy huddle here. We're good enough. We're good enough. You know, the reason we have somebody stand, and, you know, Mike, I'll pick on you, you know, stand and say your name is because people don't know you. There's, I've met some no folks here today. They don't know you. So let's not have this insider language going on. Let's be open and understand that all of us want to get around the fire. And so we have to think that way. And what happens as these missional communities grow is um, we spawn missional communities. I don't want to say we split them. Split's just a bad word. Nobody likes that. Because what happens when you have your friends, you have your oikos, nobody, you, nobody wants somebody to come and say, all right, you're done now. Go your separate. When somebody moves away that you love and care for, you've done life with, it's hard. But somewhere, we have to create, I don't know if you want to call them systems, I think it's a vision of what Jesus had, where we multiply missional communities. And maybe a couple, three people get up and they say, we're going to go start another missional community in another part of French Valley or over in Marietta or down on the south side of Temecula, whatever it might be. You know, we're going to go up to Hemet and establish one. It's like, really? You don't like us anymore? No. We're being sent out. And so we multiply missional communities. And then with these missional communities, we will come back together on a Sunday morning or a weekend experience, and we will gather. And when you take a bunch of little fires and you put them all together, you have a big bonfire. But you don't come here to get fired up. I'm sort of doing that today, I guess. I'm trying to encourage this, right? But, you know, I want it to be Catholic. But the sense is you bring the fire with you. That's what makes great services. A great gathering. So you have these big bonfires, but you're, you also have the missional communities going on. You have the gathered aspect of the community of Christ. You have the scattered aspect. They met in the temple, and they met in homes. They met in the public domains, and they met in their oikos. I don't know if you've seen this clearly, and I, I've been a student of church history a lot. It's what called me into ministry. I was tired of dead churches, and I wanted to be an official church butt kicker, if you remember me telling you that. And I've studied revival movements. You know, revival isn't just about people being on fire with Jesus. It's about how we go about being Jesus every single day. And I think we've done a poor job in the American church of being feet of multiple messengers together on teams and doing what Jesus calls us to do. In my talk this week with Dan, I was saying, Dan... I know where I want to take the church. I'm scared. I'm scared of multiple fronts. One is there's a lot of things that we need to keep working with. There's a lot of leadership that needs to be developed. There's a lot of initiatives that are really good initiatives that people have interest in. 
but I'm scared because I know you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if we cross the line and say we're going to really frame up these missional communities of 20 to 50 people, extended families, oikos on missions together, if we're not ready for it, then it can come and go as a mere program. And it's not a program. It's a way of doing life and doing church today. And so, you know, after a while, people go, oh, we tried that and did that. It's good that guy moved on. we got another new pastor now. I mean, that's some of my own little fear. But I have this vision. I have this heart for us being a people on mission together, vibrantly knowing Jesus. And we're not pigeonholing everybody, and we're building these little programs that everybody has to fit into what we're doing. We're letting the Holy Spirit lead us, and we're moving into different sectors. We're taking our little torches. Wasn't that pretty cool if you watch the Olympics? You know, they carry the torch in, and then they light this little torch, and whoosh, it goes up into the big flame that's in the center of, of the Olympic um, Park. And I think, Lord, we're carrying these torches around. And I want us to come together and have vibrant, dynamic weekends. And that's why Jeremy and we talked about blowing this place a little bit bigger and then redoing the stage and stuff and getting a, a gathering space and a coffee area behind and all that we want to do because we want great gatherings on the weekends. But friends, I don't want that to define who we are. I want us to define who we are by we're out there as oikos is on fire for Jesus, being contagious communities, apologetics for the Christian faith, as Jesus intended I want to go back to Acts 8.1. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're familiar with Acts 8.1. But do you know what Acts, I mean 1.8, do you know what Acts 8.1 says? This is what Acts 1.8 says, but this is what Acts 8.1 says. This is following the stoning of, of, of um, Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, because that's just where the church was. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And the apostle Paul, who at that time was just named Saul, he was you know, a Pharisee, and he was carrying the cloaks for those people who stoned, uh, stoned Stephen. And then he started to go from house to house, it says, right after that. Why? Because that's where the red-hot fires were. Started to go house to house and disband things and cause disruption. And they, as church leaders in Jerusalem, knew the handwriting on the wall. We can't do this public thing as much anymore. Even these houses of faith are in question mark. And so they scattered. And they went as extended families and oikosis to all different kinds of regions. And that's where the gospel started to take off. The Christianity, the faith that Jesus initiated with his life, death, and resurrection just didn't stay in Jerusalem. It started to move. It started to move throughout the known world at that time. And we got this diagram here of, of what's um, seen as some of those early places. You have Jerusalem down here in the lower corner, by, you know, at the, in the southeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And then you got Damascus marked at 38 A.D. Jesus died in 33 A.D. Then you got Antioch in 41 A.D., just north of that. That's where they were first called Christians, Scripture says. It was an Antioch. So a, an oikos, a group, a, a torchbearer went to Antioch, and then it sort of caught flame around there. And then you have Galatia, 51 A.D., Philippi, 51 A.D., Thessalonica, 51 A.D., Corinth, 52 A.D., Ephesus, 53 A.D., Colossae, 55 A.D., and Rome, 60 A.D. You see how it spread? And do you know how it spread? It spread because Paul went on missionary journeys, but when he went on missionary journeys, he found some of these people who were scattered from Jerusalem, and they were like these oikoses operating in these places. They'd gone back to their home arenas, and they were gathering together in the homes with 
passionate spirituality, radical community, and missionary zeal. And so you find the spread of Christianity and then moving on into the first few centuries, and you have this diagram. This diagram shows 325 A.D. in the light blue, I mean in the dark blue, and then 600 in the lighter blue. It starts to spread. Jesus, you'll receive power. Wait, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay, Holy Spirit comes. Many were saved. They start meeting in homes. Persecution breaks out. Uh-oh. Holy Spirit was as much in Acts 8.1 as spoken of in Acts 1.8. He scattered them. Do you know that churches reach a certain size and they hit a ceiling or a lid? Part of that's a sociological dynamic. I think the other part of it is the Holy Spirit. Saying, when are you going to learn? It's not about just all getting together on a weekend here. Sir. I want you to scatter. And churches that really do have a larger impact are those who have learned to be able to balance both the gathering and the scattering. Leslie Newbegin says this, used it before, the church is a movement launched into the life of the world to bear in its own life God's gift of peace for the life of the world. It is sent, therefore, not only to proclaim the kingdom, but to bear in its own life the presence of the kingdom. So these are my questions I close with. Do we believe in lostness? That people are not only eternally lost without knowing Jesus Christ, but there's lostness in their everyday life and not finding fulfillment and meaning and ultimate purpose in who he made them to be. I was texting my back and forth with my uh, junior high school yesterday while we were celebrating the 21st birthday of my oldest son. And Zach was trying to witness via text to a friend um, and he was wanting to know how to frame things up better and he was getting responses back and forth so he texted me dad now what do I say how do I encourage him this way and this friend is a um, great young man part of a really good family but it's not a family of faith and he was trying to influence his friend because he knows that his friend is lost he may climb a great corporate ladder and be tremendously successful in life very smart young man but he was trying to push back the darkness and lower the lostness in the life of an individual. And I thought, way to go, friend. Way to go, son. Do we believe in lostness? Second, then, will we respond to the lostness? And if so, then who will respond? We had crossing the line a couple weeks ago, and I so receptive what I'm feeling in this church, that people say, we want to be a part of that more and more. If so, then how? And I'm presenting to you that there's both the public gathering and there's the oikos dispersing. Then with whom will you do it with in that oikos, in that missional community? And then the last question is when. The last question is what I've struggled with, as I've mentioned, because I don't want false starts. I know you don't get one time to make a first impression. But God's just saying, would you just chill out, Bowman, and let it go? Amen. You know, it's that whole control thing. I was back to Renee's testimony there a little bit where we go. And I'm like, okay, i got to get all the ducks lined up in a row and make sure it's right. Well, some of you are meeting in small groups already. And um, 
I'm not asking any small group to disband or change or do anything. I think we need small groups. You need small groups actually that are a smaller group underneath a missional community, which is more of a mid-sized group. But maybe your small group chooses to take on a missionary zeal that it's never had before, and you have an open chair and you start inviting more people in, and then you work somehow with having the smaller, more intimate environments. I don't know. Maybe it's we start a couple new missional communities. My wife and I have been praying about that in her own life, and, and we just say, you know, maybe there's some people on the backside of the fire trying to, trying to get warm. And we say, hey, come on in. We'll go on a journey together. I don't know how long we'll be together because we'll probably multiply and go off and start another one. But we'll raise up leadership, do it together in team. I don't know how it plays its way out logistically. And part of me would say, Jesus, can we just wait till the fall? He's like, no. I want you to create a catalytic gathering experience on this weekend. And I want you to create dynamic missional communities. And so the when has been a big question for me. And that's why I'm crossing a line today. And I'm not here to do a sales job. I'm just trying to be obedient to Jesus. We, we, have, we have to do church different. And it's going to require some sacrifice and commitment to realign our lives around building great communities of faith to know Jesus and to make him known. Will you respond to the lostness? If so, then how, then who, how, with when, with whom and when? Then this is my last question. Then who is in? Who is in? In a picture of the valley here. Team TV. That doesn't mean TV TV. It means Team Tevecula Valley. I believe God wants multiple teams operating in this valley. Missional communities of good news. How beautiful are the feet of those messengers who bring good news. Are you in? If you would take your communication card on the backside, and maybe today, maybe some other day, don't make this as a flippant decision. I don't know what it means. I don't know what cost there is involved in it. I don't know how it's going to play its way out. I'm just deciding to let God lead. We're going to be talking about it as elders at our Tuesday night meeting. But I do know that we need to be building these vibrant communities. And if you want to be a part of one of those communities, just simply write on the back of your communication card, I'm in. And if you write I'm in on that communication card, that'll let me know you have interest. You don't have to be a part of a missional community. You're not a second-rate Christian if you're not a part of one. But I tell you what, I want to win some gold medals, and I don't want to win individual gold. I want to win them as team gold. And I want to carry people into eternity, and I want to carry memories into eternity. Are you in? If so, sign up. Let's cross the line. Let's pray. Let's seek. Let's serve. Let's build leadership. Let's figure it out. And I tell you what, when it starts to happen, you want to talk about one rocking bonfire on a Sunday morning? Jesus, we thank you. I thank you for the passion of these people, their receptivity, even into the length of the words today. But God, we cross a line today. We're going to do this. We're going to build vibrant missional communities. And I don't know how it's going to come about, and I'm not going to measure success by the number of them or how well-known they may be or how high-functioning they are. We are going to measure success by just simple obedience to you every day of our life. And I know this is an obedience step for us as a church this day, that we frame it up, and just as sure as you raised up an inner core that was passionate in their spiritual pursuit of you, that had radical love and community with one another, and they had a missionary zeal, you want to raise up multiple flaming cores around your Holy Spirit for today in this valley. As our other churches, Lord, in this valley, we don't even do this alone for sure. But Lord, may you move, may you sweep, 
across this valley. May you rock this valley for your kingdom and for your good. Lord, we worship you in the beauty of your holiness and your grace. Amen. Wish you spend time in worship. Maybe you need time to make a decision or not today. The ushers are going to come during this worship block and receive the tithes and offerings as well as your communication cards. But let's just spend worship.